Welcome to the CIO Evolution. In this podcast, we'll explore the Chief Information Officer's role in executing a new ongoing leadership imperative, digital transformation that promotes agility and resilience. How do CIOs upgrade legacy networks? What are the financial challenges CIOs face? And what are the security measures that are required in the new work-from-anywhere mobile and cloud-based world? I'd like to welcome our listeners to Episode 10 of the CIO Evolution podcast series. I'm your host, Phil Armstrong, and we're joined today by two amazing guests and industry specialists, Manish Sahu and Bill Harmer. Welcome, gentlemen. Perhaps we can do a quick round of introductions. Manish, would you be so kind to start us off? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on your show, Phil. My official title is the Director of OT Network and Security Transformation. My job is to make OT, which is operational technology, secure. And operation technology is all the equipment and associated systems involving physical processes, manufacturing assembly lines, warehouses, power plants, oil rigs, more secure today. And in this day and age, those are considered critical infrastructure because if any of them goes down, that means money lost, productivity lost, and that's what keeps our economy churning. Thank you. Bill? Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I am currently an operating partner at Craft Ventures, helping out on their uh, the security, privacy, IT, and DevOps side. I work with the consulting side on uh, new investments, uh, existing portfolio companies, uh, helping them with their strategies. And I'm the former CISO, field CISO for Zscaler. So I've gone through that zero trust. That is the piece that I'm bringing to, uh, to Craft Ventures and their new companies. Perfect. Thank you. And that's a perfect segue into some observations that we're seeing in the industry right now. And the move to zero trust architecture is gaining strong momentum across all of the industries. And it's clear that it's a top CIO priority. We're hearing a lot about building this company-wide digital operating system that is scalable and flexible, economically efficient, and of course, secure. And they need this to enable business transformations and to provide a foundation from which to deliver their company's future digital aspirations. CIOs are now finding that zero trust architecture is also a great enabler for implementing future cybersecurity capabilities. And today I wanted to explore the cyber market and its future direction from your unique perspectives. Both of you have tremendous insights and experience working within the cybersecurity industry. And it would be a wasted opportunity if I didn't ask you to share that with our listening audience today where you felt the industry is heading and what new technologies we're going to see. And, and if I was a CIO or a CISO and gazing into my cybersecurity crystal ball, what emerging trends would I see and what would I need to be positioning my organization for in the future? So let's start with Manish. Manish, you've been talking a lot recently about supplier risk and managing third-party identities subcontractors, vendors, supply chain. This is a really hot topic these days. There are solutions that help with external identity access management, but given the complexity and scale, an area you feel is ripe for improvement and greater automation? Phil, definitely. The answer is a strong yes. This journey for managing third-party identities and access 
and suppliers began nearly 20 years back uh, when Boeing launched their new fleet of 737s. And you had airlines across the country which were deploying them um, in the markets in the U.S. And one of them was Southwest Airlines and all the engineers needed manuals and uh, information about the parts. And uh, the way Boeing was solving that using the centralized identity where they were provisioning Southwest uh, contractors and employees in their um, identity systems and contractors were facing the problem with forgotten passwords and having an expensive password reset process. So that's the origin of federated identity and SAML came to the fore. And now you could have a strong trust relationship between a, uh, suppliers. So Southwest could uh, federate with Boeing and vice versa. You have single sign-on, uh, your engineers could access the manuals uh, using just the Southwest identities and things were good. And we've been chugging along on this 20 year old standard and it's really getting long in the tooth. And the reason is in this day and age, it's very hard to do federated identities across organizations. Siemens is a customer of Zscaler. They're, uh, they've got equipment which is sell to almost every manufacturing company across the world. It's impossible for them to federate the identities or the customer's identities with themselves. The role now is a more nimble, a leaner a mechanism for folks in one company to access systems in another. Uh, while still applying the strong security principles, just in time, just enough access. Um, these are the major themes which we haven't solved and we need to go beyond federated identities to solve these problems. This is an area where Zscaler is collaborating with, is doing a lot of co-innovation with some of the identity experts and also helping us evolve the entire marketplace so we can have a very compelling offering for OT. Yeah. yeah. And Bill, you must have yeah. seen this problem many times in financial services in the cyber industry. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, when I when I think back to even my time at Zscaler, we always talked about give me a SAML token and the magic will happen. That's where all the, you know, the DLP hit, the sandboxing, all the tools hit. And that's where I saw a piece missing in how does this, how is this, this zero trust going to be predicated on trusting an identity? How are they, how do you tie all this together? I ended up making a change and going to uh, an, an identity company. And what I've seen in the last two years is, is this in continuous push into, into that identity space where I'm seeing proxy companies come out. Like you take like a company like Strata that is able to proxy the front end and connect all of the back end. Uh, you get Silverfort, which is a backend connectivity that hooks all the databases to provide rules. Because with identity, the, the key focus is consistency. It's that what are you doing and how are you doing it? Are you doing it the same way all the time? And when you have this, these groups of identities, digital identities in different repositories on different systems, you and I remember the days, the legacy uh, mainframes that can't handle any of the new technology. How do you tie that in, right? And so now you've got multitude of different vendors because we've split everything up. The democratization of software created all these unique software vendors. So instead of SAP owning everything, which they do since they bought everything again, but you know, <laughs> the, the days of SAP had the one big system, um, we now have like the, the Workday does this and the, the NetSuite does that and everybody's doing a little bit. So you're, you're multiplying all of your vendors 
plus all of your users, plus all of your your customers as well? How do you manage large-scale, multi-million user installations of customers on top of it? Do you just throw them in Active Directory with all of your employees? No, most companies don't want to do that. So there is this massive push, not only for um, automation, but for legacy connectivity across all of these disparate systems globally, right? So take geopolitics out of it as well. Now we're going global on top of it. Currently, it's a mess. That's about the only way to describe it. And automation is is a huge part of it, bringing non-repudiation to the identities, bringing faster resolution to compromised accounts, being able to manage them is, is a huge part of what's happening today. Yeah, so basically watch this space when it comes to subcontractors and supply chain and third-party identities. I think there's going to be a lot of movement in that area and solutions coming forward, hopefully. Even look at Okta. When Okta bought um, Auth0, they paid $6 billion for that company. Why? Because they needed to automate that piece of it. Yeah, and you can't really have a conversation about identity without falling into a conversation about device identity how do you manage device identity this is a really hot topic and again generates a lot of noise a lot of passion manish what's your thoughts on where managing device identities are going in the future i actually worked for five years at samsung iot doing the strategy for devices and device identity and i can tell you the current way where things are being done where each device definitely needs a root of trust. They need to have a certificate baked into the device. But the current model is based on this digital twin where you know a thermostat has an equivalent to the cloud and the only way to get to the device is via that cloud is something which hasn't expanded beyond the scope of uh, smart home and smart home automation. When you look at OT and IoT, a device could be speaking to multiple services and it needs to be sending data to different data lakes. It needs to be aggregating data from devices downstream. This model of just a single device twin is again, a very, very tight constraint. And there's another trend which is going on where you could have a single device manufacturer where the device identity in the form of a certificate is already baked in, but they're selling to multiple OEMs And having to depend on that original route of trust is not going to scale because, you know, those certificates are just from one manufacturer. How do you provide a way to distinguish this batch of devices which were going to this OEM and another batch with this other OEM? So there's a new trend, which is called the secure device onboarding, which is to have a little more late binding. Can we piggyback on top of that route uh, route of trust and at a time of installation, you can, you can assign the fact that this device is associated with this particular manufacturer and not somebody else. So just to simplify things a bit, currently with devices, the biggest problem is the time of onboarding and installation. Today, it's a very expensive factory rollout process where each device, when it's been rolled out, needs to be demarcated as something which belongs to a specific OEM. So this makes it very complicated. The new trend is to go beyond this really long-lived identity, which is necessary to be installed on device and to have a very late binding approach to it. Again, this is area which is evolving. You have FIDO Alliance, which is trying to have a standard and specification, just like WebAuthn. 
and having all the device manufacturers adhere to that specification. So again, watch the space. This is evolving and you know we are working with these partners to bring this to market together. Yeah, and yeah, it I think complicates if you... things if you don't own the device too. If, if you've got a BYOD strategy in place or a lot of your customers are using their own devices and third parties. So it's a hard issue. Bill, have you, uh, have you struggled with this one in the past? Well, you know, like, I mean, I, I've been talking about IoT for the last probably 10 years because um, if you think back to, to the world of Windows and, and the zombie botnets there, the zombie networks that were created off Windows, that took years for some of those to, to accumulate. Um, right now, you're looking at thir- 13 billion IoT devices, I think they said for 2021, with an expected growth rate to 30.8 billion by 2025. The human population is 7 billion now, and it's going to be 8 billion by 2025. I mean, it's, 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 it's exponentially larger. And every one of these devices, as Manish said, has you know a, a, a root of trust. So it, it's kind of like a birth certificate, right? It's it's got that piece, but it's going to have a life of its own. And I think this is where we have to start talk, thinking about these things: that we treat them like humans, we treat them like entities themselves, because they have behaviors, they have jobs to do, they have roles to fulfill, they have lifespans, and you have to start understanding what is it doing, why is it doing it, should it be doing it. Have we allowed it to do something it shouldn't do, right? And when you onboard it, it's almost like onboarding an employee to a company or granting a visa to a country. You're allowing this thing to come in. I don't know much about it. I'm presenting a certificate to say, here's, here's where I was born. And here's, here's what I was meant to do. But you can take cameras that were originally meant to be security cameras and they can become something else. Maybe somebody uses them in a movie or something, right? So they, they have these changing roles. And I think we have to start finding ways these things are eventually going to take over and kill us all anyways, right? You know, rise of the robots. So we might as well treat them like humans now and, and start applying some rules to them. Um, and I think, you know, as we do that, there's a variety of mechanisms out there, you know, um, sort of blockchain registration for IOT devices. So you can see the history and the life of it and see as maybe I sell my assets to somebody else. So you can see where they go because things have memory in them. Things have like, I guess, you know, we can start figuring out ways to truly manage these things as they become bigger, larger, and take over a vast majority of our digital world. And a lot of times when you start talking about IoT or OT, traditional companies that are not in manufacturing or don't have factories, they'll sit there and they'll say, oh, that doesn't really apply to me. But I've seen vending machines showing up in corporate offices that are plugged into the internet for inventory refills or maintenance calls. And they're connected to your network and connected to the internet and blowing a backdoor hole into your multi-million dollar cyber strategy, as well as as as, uh, uh, devices that were meant for home retail devices that are now making their way into corporate head offices and buildings because people want to be more um, energy efficient and get lead certification and reduce their carbon footprints and things like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a growing issue. Well, yeah, if you look at, if you, if the pandemic did anything, it proved Zscaler right, like fundamentally right in that people will work from anywhere, right? I spent five years talking about how do I do a distributed network where security can follow me because I'm not going to just come to the office. And if I do come to the office, you got me for seven and a half hours a day with a great corporate security program. But the second I go out to Starbucks for a coffee or I go home or I go on vacation, I take my devices with me. My security needs to follow me, right? So that whole piece, Chris Roberts did a brilliant talk years ago called Security Hopscotch on 
how to compromise an entire power station because a guy happened to have one of these fancy new ovens that you could remote access to at his house. And that is the world we're in now. Everybody now works from home. I'm going to say everybody, just in the general term, the majority of people are working from home, working remote, and it's going to continue to stay. So, you know, Google and, and the big company, the, the big Silicon companies are saying, you know, work from home forever. Great. But that makes every home now a threat network to me, right? It is, it is untrusted. You know, you got kids there that are 16 and playing Steam games, which are compromised left, right, and center. You have all of these backdoors coming into your environment. So how are you going to start to manage it? Because I've seen homes now with 40, 50 IoT devices in them because people are putting in cameras, they're putting in motion detectors, carbon monoxide, their fridge, their stove, you know, how many Alexas, like we have more spying devices in our home that can be compromised and then used to get in because the traditional VPN is still the thing that we use today to connect remote employees back in. And we got to kill the VPN to start with. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's we're the world is, is we've, we've built all these different little things out there, whether it was home, whether it was vacation, whether it was work. And now all of a sudden in two years, we've connected everything and everything is connected. And all of those IOT devices are all targets to be used. DDoS sniffers, whatever you want. Yeah. I've got to say that, uh, even though you have like 50 smart home devices, you got to ask yourself the question, do you really own them? Because <laughs> yep. just like the nuclear attack, what is stopping someone who created this next smart home device from somehow securely, remotely accessing your device and yep. then moving laterally and uh, doing oh. a recon attack and, and, and Absolutely. you know, exfiltrating data from your home. So yep. I think um, in the next few years, there's going to be, some governance around it because, uh, you know, it's a network device and nobody's got those fancy, sophisticated firewalls and, you know, Zscaler deployed in their homes. <laughs> but this is an area where people are going to ask for ownership of their devices, of their data. And, you know, some regulations are definitely going to be coming up around that pretty soon. Yeah. Even the importance of these devices, I was speaking to a global CIO of a large automobile parts manufacturer, and he had factories all over the world. And he said, Phil, you know, these devices started off as conveniences on the shop floor, maybe productivity aids, but now they're integral to the production flow. And as they become more and more important, we need to get our arms around them and have a strategy and standards, all-encompassing standards. We need to be able to patch them appropriately and allow the vendor to come in remotely and patch them in a safe way. And so this whole management of IoT and OT, I think, is a fascinating topic area that we could spend the entire conversation on because it's, uh, it's growing quickly. What is it? Six to eight devices per person on the planet. So it's not going away. Even I touched there a little bit about the processes of managing cybersecurity. And I hear a lot of complaints about how onerous and complex uh, security processes are, especially in large organizations. You know, to the group here, and maybe we can start with Bill, do you see more automation coming? for the security process? I mean, if you look at the proliferation of systems like Wiz and Jupyter One, it's really helping to spawn secondary needs that push the security further down the engineering stack. And, and what trends are you seeing in uh, the automation of the security piece in this really complicated FinDev SecOps world that we now live in? 
the amount of work that needs to be done is is huge. This the, the whole idea of the, the ability to build code by clicking and dragging and dropping, you know, the no code, low code uh, sort of build process is is just rapidly moving. You have that on one side. You have uh, things like AWS, GCP, Azure, the ability to build out environments very quickly, very automated as far as something like AWS is concerned. They want you up running and using resources. And you know, if you look at the security, they have good security, but it protects them. They have good security tools, but you have to know what you're doing. And it is not in their realm to try and tell you what to do because they host everything. So they can't look at somebody and just say, well, you've started up this, this SaaS company, do this. Maybe they could, but they don't. So what you've got is you've got people with the ability to build out very powerful, very complex systems. Um, they're built early. And as they go, they're being told, do more with less, right? So you've got DevOps sec. And if you've ever seen DevOps nowadays, there is, it is just so rare that I see a true DevOps shop built correctly. It tends to be just somebody told the engineers to run operations without giving them the tools or the, the background in how to run operations, right? So you start to see corners cut. And what you're start, what we're starting to see, or at least I'm starting to see, is the, the ability to build security into the coding process. I've, I've been an advocate that said the, the CISO role should go away. There shouldn't be a need for a CISO role because at that point, we are everybody doing security the way we should. It's integral to what we do. It's going to be years before that happens, I think. But I'd love to see it get to that point. So what we see is, is uh, companies like Oak9, right? Oak9 is building in the iterance process into the DevOps development world that hits it early because if you build something, go through a standard waterfall, do your testing, um, send it to staging, ops tests, it rolls it out, and then they find something. The rollback and fix process is expensive and slow compared to as you're coding and checking as you go and teaching the engineer as well at the same time. That's the feedback loop. Just simply putting up the blocks is okay, but it is not sustainable because you irritate people, you get in the way, you feel like a break. If you're now educating the engineers as they're coding, oh, concatenated SQL statement, oh, don't do that, here's why, oh, I shouldn't do that. And the next time they're starting to write that, they go, wait a minute, didn't that thing pop up? Yeah, it did. I'm going to try it the way it told me to do it, right? And you want that iterative process so you're getting faster, more secure code in through the environment. Same with the infrastructure as well. How do you go in and plow through an infrastructure the way Wiz does and sees all of the little things that have been built. You've, you've built a, an application over here. You've built a, a monitoring tool over there. You've connected the two together. None of them has a, a very high vulnerability, but when combined, the blast radius of a vulnerability out front, if somebody turns on, say, proxy IP address to allow somebody through, suddenly becomes exponential because you connected different things together that nobody looked at, right? Everybody, everybody was building AWS and making it work and nobody was looking yeah. at all the little things that were interconnected in the background and now they are. Now what happens when? Because we always say it's not if, it's when you get compromised. So when you get compromised, say on your application, how bad is the damage? And that's where we're now seeing this automation process. And again, as you do infrastructure as code or security infrastructure as code, can you build this out so that it cuts it off before you have to go back and go, oh man, how do I re-architect this? Because AWS architects are massively expensive. Like I mean, they are getting cherry-picked from company to company because there's so few of them to truly understand it. If we look yeah. into the future, we've got all kinds of new technology coming our way. 
you know, and, and it will probably challenge some of the traditional approaches that we've used. And if you look at, for example, the advent of digital wallets and Web 3.0 and blockchain, this, uh, and what this really means for federated, decentralized identity, do you think some of these things can be carried over into the enterprise, Manish? What, what's your thoughts on that? Definitely, yes. The reason is this. For the last 20 years or so, we've had federated identities as a de facto model for federating between companies and between the company's identities and applications. But the problem with that is you've taken the users out of the loop. Uh, And what I mean by this is it's great for enterprises to make something consistent and uniform. Today, using Office 365 for email, uh, tomorrow, that company can just swap it out and put Google Apps and just make sure that as long as the identities are in there and you transfer the emails, uh, the change process is very low. But uh, the end user is pretty much has no control over what, what they can access and what they can do with their own data. So like I said, again, there's a strong move towards introducing the user into the mix of things where users can manage the identities and they can do something with their own data. And to give you a real world example, today in your wallet, you have different types of IDs. You have your license, you have your insurance card from your favorite insurance company, you have your COVID passport, you've got your library cards, <laughs> and you've got a whole bunch of these which are issued by uh, by several people. And you know whether you're standing in a line trying to get into a pub or go to a restaurant, they're going to ask you one of those identities and you present it to them and they verify the identity in some format and they let you go. Nobody's calling up the DMV and saying, hey, do you trust Manish? But that's the problem today is Today, you still need that identity provider to be in the loop. And, the, and that's why we need this decentralized identities because you want the user to be able to say, you know, this is my identity and this is for this specific use case and not for anything else. I just need to go into the beer shop and have a beer or I need to go into the library and take a book out and specify the correct identity and pull things out. So the move is towards Use going towards decentralized identities, it's again a few years away, but it's a very scalable model. It takes out a lot of folks out of the loop and it's got a real world analogy and that's going to work a lot better for end users. It also means that, that when, when one of those pieces of that complete identity does get compromised, somebody impersonates you at the library and gets a library card in your name, you can replace that piece without your entire identity being blown out of the water, right? Right now, we're sort of heading down this path of everything's going digital. And when they scoop up something, they own all of it, right? They own me completely. So how do I, how do I create an identity where I share the piece that's required for the content? It's context-based, right? It's context-aware. I'm, I'm sharing this piece that is specific to the action that's happening and only the piece that I choose goes across, right? So it, it's, it's just, I think it's a much more manageable, feasible one that promotes the privacy of the person as well. And gentlemen, I'd like to conclude our discussion today. It's been fascinating. We could go on for hours, but maybe let's just shift gears a little bit and tackle the last, uh, the last sort of emerging issue that I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit 
around broader issues of identity, such as allowing for anonymity versus privacy or free speech versus marketing and the need for validated identities. Bill, what's your, what's your take on this complicated subject and how it will affect <laughs> this, this, yeah, the thinking of the CIO in two minutes or less? <laughs> yeah, this one's a passionate one. And this is an entire episode in itself, because to me, when I start to look at identities, Right. When you look at uh, Facebook, Facebook has X billion identities on there and their entire revenue model is based off marketing. How many eyeballs did I show them an ad to? So they're not incentivized to cull out and they say, oh, yeah, we've killed a billion identities. Truthfully, you should never have let a billion of them on the platform to start with. Right. So how do you find this balance between validating who I am? Because a lot of people out there want what they call privacy. And in truth, they want the anonymity. They want to be able to say whatever they want, but they don't want the repercussions of responsibility for their words. Um, and and there's, there's all sorts of different aspects to this. You know, the Supreme Court upheld the right to anonymity under free speech. And that has to, how do you, how do you bring that into the, uh, into the space when you're dealing with a lot of these companies that are truly private entities, right? They are not my, my right to stand on the corner on my soapbox and say what I wish and not, you know, I can wear a mask and hide my identity but I'm saying stuff versus who gives me the right to promote propaganda or uh, truth or not truth or marketing stuff versus right? all of this based on the identity that is connecting to it. And I think to me, it is starting with at least in things like social media and enterprise um, and uh, commercial endeavors, that it's a validated identity. And it ties back to, to what Manish was saying about creating that wallet, creating that identity, where I can say, yes, I want to join Facebook. Or I want to join Twitter. Here's a bit of my identity to prove who I am. Yes, I am Bill Harmer. Here's proof of that. And then they create my identity around it because you know, Twitter's got the little blue check mark to say that you're a validated or a I don't know, a certified user or something like that. That just has to do with the fact that you sort of comply with some of the rules that there are, if you've ever read the rules, they're super vague as well. And it allows them the ability to wiggle out of anything that somebody says. Um, so I think that those are the things that we need to look at is how do we start to deal with this? Because meta and the whole idea of the metaverse is rapidly, <laughs> I'm a netizen from the early days, right? I, I always thought it'd be really cool to live online. And I'm seeing this thing start to take root real quick. You can I'm, buy real I, estate I've been there. spending time in the metaverse every day. Honestly, it's, I have. Yeah. yeah it's, and, and so this is where we're going to get to, right? How do we prove who we are to some degree and still provide the, uh, the, the privacy that we uh, expect and the anonymity that we are allowed to have, uh, yeah. right? It, it's yeah. just a massive, massive. I am problem. a lot taller and slimmer in the metaverse though, Bill, <laughs> just, just to let you know. Manish, what's your thoughts on this? I've started saying on the consumer side of things, you have uh, Europe having GDPR and California having CCPA and Canada PIP, EDA. And that is definitely driving some of these conversations about privacy. But today we are still at the mercy of some of the tech giants. I mean, Cambridge Analytica, you didn't have a say about having your information shared with them for doing whatever they need to do with that information. So they're going to get, uh, and the companies involved are going to be fine. But like I said, some of these problems need to be solved at the foundation level. How can we build this identity from scratch where the users are in the loop and the privacy is, is foremost, anonymity is foremost, and so that they can trust the system again and, and not be suspicious about these big actors? Because, you know, we are in a highly connected world. Forget about metaverse. You know, you have 
Southwest who need to speak to Boeing in the fix the problem the next minute. So that connectedness, the denseness is going to keep increasing. But even on the enterprise side of things, we need to make sure that privacy is taken care of and, and these are all secure transactions. And it'll be global yeah. too, right? It's, it's gone globally. You can, you can do commerce globally. You can circumvent taxes, though you may not be intentionally doing it. You can buy something for Germany. They throw it in the mail. It gets mailed to you. You bought it. Sales tax in your state wasn't collected. You know, we are going to see the breakdown of the geopolitical machine as we know it today based on the digital metaverse as it comes. Well, great way to end it there, guys. Thank you so much for uh, the discussion today. We could have gone on for hours. You can see why this is such a challenge for CIOs and CISOs as they look into their crystal ball and try to plan out a more proactive approach for their cybersecurity strategy going forward. We haven't even touched on things like, are we ever going to get to that Nirvana passwordless uh, state that we've all been promised? You know, is AI and ML really going to start to come in and play a more active role in cybersecurity defenses? Uh, the metaverse, what does that even mean for e-commerce going forward and, and, and leisure activities? And, and how does that apply to identity and cyber? Clearly, identity is front and center of what we're thinking about in terms of emerging trends and certainly technologies coming forward to help us be more proactive in this fight. Thank you very much, Bill, today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Manish. Your opinions, your, your stories and experience came through pretty strongly there. And I think we're aligned that this is going to be a challenge going forward. Thank you to our listeners and hope to see you again on our next episode of the CIO Evolution. Thanks for listening to the CIO Evolution. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find more episodes along with other podcasts on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of the recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.